Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, service, and the inner life. Join us now for part three of a four-part conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner as they explore Brother David Stendelrast's spiritual biography. Welcome back, Brother David. Thank you very much, Michael. So in the last conversation, we left off when you had joined the uh, Mount Savior Monastery in Elmira, New York, and we talked about the years from 1953 to 1958, where you really deeply led the life of a Benedictine monk. At the very beginning of our conversations, you suggested that we focus on some peak moments was that period of your life a period of peak moments or experiences? How would you describe it? I wouldn't be more <coughs> inclined to speak of almost of a plateau. Uh, it was a, a constant high. Uh, I remember, uh, for instance, when I was house cleaning and when the uh, little dust boom hit the dustpan, at that time one still had metal dustpans, when it hit, it was like a gong, and that would just send me. <laughs> it was incredible. That was the sound of the universe. And it wasn't at all self-conscious. Or, uh, that was just a very happy and fulfilled life. And speaking of, of happy and fulfilled, um, you've chosen to make gratefulness the center of whatever we call your informal theology. Yes? Yes, yes, it has turned out to be. It's less me choosing it as it just emerged. Yeah, emerging. When did gratefulness become central to your thinking about how you would present your work? Uh, I can't pinpoint uh, that, uh, that moment or that, that period of time. Uh, I think when you have so little, it's easier to be grateful. Uh, so we, we grew up uh, grateful for everything we had. Uh, but later on, when I was giving talks and so forth, for, for one thing I discovered that gratefulness was uh, common to all the different traditions. Uh, every tradition would say, yes, gratefulness, that is at the heart of our tradition. The Christians would say, the Buddhists would say, it, everybody, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, everybody prizes uh, gratefulness. And people who are not standing in any particular tradition also sometimes even say, well, I think gratefulness, that is my religion or so. Uh, so it it's, uh, fulfills a deep need of all human beings, and therefore it lends itself so wonderfully in dialogue as, as a starting point or as, as common ground. And I discovered that gradually. And uh, in the year 2000, when we started our website, uh, at first uh, we, uh, I didn't suggest gratefulness. Uh, I wasn't that clear that it was so much in the center of my teaching or anything. And we tried other things, and I, actually <laughs> we settled on gratefulness because it was a domain name that was still available uh -huh. among the 
various <laughs> to name them that we suggested, but we could have ended up having something quite different. Uh, and and did not come from me the suggestion, but from our webmaster, from Daniel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And yet, uh, your book, uh, Gratefulness, The Heart of Prayer, I guess, was this your second book? I mean, you published A Listening Heart. Uh, in Listening Heart was later. Gratefulness was the first The first one. book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in it, as a reader, it felt to me as if you were trying to work out in Christian terms, in Catholic terms, in Benedictine terms, uh, work out a way of speaking the language of um, a living Christ-centered vision um, by taking 54 key words and going to their roots and repurposing them for a universal spiritual experience. Well, that, uh, I think, originated in the fact that in talking with people about spiritual things, I found that if I used the traditional Christian terms, uh, for many Christians uh, were allergic against them, Uh, others misunderstood them. They had a misconception of what they actually meant. Uh, So I tried very soon to uh, know what I wanted to say and then try to say it in the terms in which I would speak with whoever my partner in conversation was and forget about the the terms, the technical terms. And that became a sort of practice for me, to say it in your own terms. Uh, don't, don't allow yourself the shortcut to say faith, for instance. Many people will understand all sorts of things under faith, usually believing something, and that's not what it is. So um, I tried to say, well, what is faith for me? What is it for us as human beings, that, that common... Uh, faith that we have in life, the trust in life. I didn't say faith, I said trust, and well, it's a special trust. I kept saying, well, radical trust or existential trust. And so I developed a language that, that tried to say the, the same thing, because I have to be very careful. Uh, when I'm invited very frequently, I'm uh, invited as a spokesperson for the Christian tradition, so I have to be faithful to the tradition, I can't just say anything that comes to my mind. And then I try to express the traditional teachings, but in new terms, in new ways of speaking about them. And that is how those 54 terms came about, uh, definitions, so that uh, people who were used to the more traditional terminology could look it up and see how I am using the terms. That's really what started it all. Didn't this, I use the word repurposing of words, but this rediscovery of the roots of words, didn't this enable you to remain faithful to your tradition as a Benedictine monk and speak a universal language? Yeah, I think so. 
it, it enabled me to speak about it in terms that people can understand right. the universal experiences here, but usually the language is very specific to the different traditions. So I tried, sometimes even borrowing from various traditions, but basically tried to speak in human terms. How would you talk with a child about it or so? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, I found that helpful, that comes across, and that forces me again and again to be very um, honest and, and um, uh, doesn't allow me any shortcuts. There's, I'm sure you're aware that um, many of the early spiritual teachers, uh, you speak of this yourself, of the tension between uh, the mystical kernel of the traditions and the shell of doctrine or dogma or whatever. And you are very aware as people who've followed this are, that there's a tension between that mystical kernel and, and what becomes, uh, you have a very eloquent way of describing it. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps I could ask you to describe it rather than trying to, to do it myself. You have a beautiful diagram, but perhaps it's in Common Sense Spirituality, I don't remember where, from the mystical vision of the founder to the mystical experience of the follower. So perhaps you could describe that diagram, because it gets at what I want to ask about. Yes, I think I know what you are referring to. Uh, and the core of every uh, religious tradition, Buddhist, Christian, uh, Muslim, everyone, uh, is a mystic experience. And uh, it goes back to the mystic experience of the founder, as you said, but it also appeals really to the mystic experience of each one of the members of that tradition. And when we have one of those peak moments, when we have one of those mystic experiences, uh, which means when we feel one with all, now that can be an overwhelming experience, big peak experience, or it can be a very gentle kind of you listen to the music and you are the music while the music lasts, as T.S. Eliot says in the Four Quartets, so a fuse, fusing with, with reality. Whenever you have that experience, then uh, you have already the seed for what eventually can become religion. And that is how I see spirituality connected with religion. Spirituality, I mean simply aliveness. That means aliveness for me. Complete aliveness, uh, including the body, all the different levels of aliveness, up to aliveness to the deepest meaning of life and, and our deepest longings and so forth. All of this together is spirituality. It's just a aliveness. And in our peak moments, in our mystic moments, we are really alive. If you want to remind somebody of their peak moments, you just have to say, remember a moment in which you felt really, really alive. And then they would say, ah, yeah, I remember. And that can be triggered by very many different triggers. And when you have this, you have the seed 
the spiritual seed for what eventually will become religion or can become religion because your intellect will question what was this now? What was this experience? Not during the experience. There you are just, you lost yourself. But afterwards, uh, you will say, what was that? And then you will explain it in terms uh, that are of something that's already familiar to, to you. So uh, if you, um, for instance, uh, are in the Christian tradition, you will say, God spoke to me or God touched me. A Jewish tradition would say the same thing. Um, had an encounter with the divine or something like that, or at least with an angel. So if, you, if that is part of your frame of reference. Uh, a Buddhist will say something very different, but uh, it depends. But at any rate, you will give some answer that uh, is an intellectual digest of what you experienced. And then that is the seed for teaching because that doctrine comes out of that. Doctrine is originally uh, the intellectual uh, presentation of your experience. Uh, you have to be careful there because originally it's, it's not abstract intellect, but it's rather mythic, it's, it's rather poetic because only poetry can carry that much weight. So originally, it's, it's, that's why the mystics all express themselves in, in poetry and why the uh, great spiritual scriptures of, of the different traditions are all poetic. So it expresses this in poetry, but it wants to say something what happened here to me. That's only one part. Your willingness, your will, which isn't another part of yourself but another aspect of yourself, also does something with it. And the will always goes for what seems desirable and says, this is what I want. And so in this case, it's very desirable because you're blissfully one with all. And so the will says, this is how one should live. And so there's the seed for moral, for ethnic behavior, because all the different moral codes in the world can be boiled down. It's very different from one another, but they all have the same basic message, this is how one lives, this is how one behaves towards people with whom one belongs together. And uh, so, uh, yes, the will says, yes, this is how I want to live. I belong. And actually, I belong to everybody. Um, the moral codes in the world differ from one another only in the uh, extent of the limits that they set. Originally, it's just a tribe, and the tribe is the one in uh, is, is the the area in which moral uh, obligations bind you to the tribe. Anybody outside is just an outsider. And in my childhood, it was totally unthought of that we have uh, at least by the majority of people, it was unthought of that we could have any responsibility towards animals. I still remember people beating horses and, and beating dogs, and nobody thought anything of it. And so animals were outside of the realm of moral obligations because we didn't belong to them. Now we have a 
since we belong to the animals, we belong to the plants, we belong to the whole universe. And so in my own lifetime, the extent of belonging has really grown um, limitlessly. And nowadays, if anybody sets limits, it's amoral, it's no longer moral. No? And uh, there's really a great uh, development has taken place. And the third aspect is the feelings. The intellect is the seed for doctrine. The uh, will is the, the seed for ethics, morals. And the emotions are the seed for celebration. The emotions are we want to celebrate, so for ritual. And uh, we all uh, have probably had some wonderful peak experiences, and, and we like to come back to that place, uh, in, in this state park, or on that peak, or on that, uh, in that, wherever it is, um, in that church or so. I had a wonderful experience of, of peace and, and harmony with all. And then I go back there and I, I visit it. That's, the, that's what you would call a, a pilgrimage. It's the beginning of pilgrimage. Or we remember the date. This happened to me on such and such a day. Oh, this is the day on which it happened. And that would be a, a religious calendar. We have feasts. and, and So it, it's all in our peak experience is already what eventually will become a religion. And then it gets institutionalized, and that's where we get the real problems. And, I, <clears throat> and this is a point in which my own development has made big strides to me, because when we, and also history contributed when we were children, uh, the institution of the church was, at least for us, that was it, you see? That was the communion of, of uh, saints. And, uh, and it, it acted like that, for instance, in, uh, in the war, when everything else was just totally chaotic. And, totally broken down, and there wasn't even water, there was no electricity, there was no food, it was just chaos. And you could count on it, five o'clock every afternoon, the parish priest would come by and bring the Eucharist. And you had a little cloth spread out, and you had candles, and you would receive the Eucharist. Uh, that, there was order, and, and, and I experienced much later in life a very similar situation in in Nigeria, where uh, I was there also at a time of revolution and of total chaos, and there was no poor mail service and no uh, transportation was a problem. Uh, I had to sleep every night in a different place because of dangers and uprisings and so forth. And the church carried everything. The church carried the mail, if you wanted to be sure that it got there. It was the church that transported it. Uh, so that was the institution. And for us, the institution wasn't separated from the spiritual tradition. But uh, I learned to recognize that institutions, not only religious institutions, but 
medical institutions, uh, academic institutions, political institutions, any institution that you name is founded for a particular purpose and in the shortest time becomes self-serving and forgets what the purpose was and becomes self-service. And that is, of course, also of religious institutions. It's very uh, damaging and so forth. So it would seem to me, for instance, that uh, uh, in the Christian church, the church would uh, uh, lead people again and support them in having that personal mystical experience or that mystic, live out of that mystical experience uh, and, uh, and so set them free. But as it is, the uh, institution has become the mediator between the divine and the human. And so they are afraid if people uh, have immediate access to the spiritual, we are out of business, so to say. But we would never be out of business because there are always new ones who come in. And uh, the Zen tradition is a good example for that. They, they always teach new people to have their own experiences. That's exactly what should be in the Christian tradition. But it isn't at the present moment. So uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I have never been given any difficulties. My community, my monastic community supports it. And from the church, I've never gotten any difficulties. Partly, I think, because I'm not aggressive. Uh, I, I present things in, in a new light, or maybe in new, certainly new words and so forth. But I do try to represent uh, the orthodox uh, teaching. And uh, at one time in uh, New Zealand, uh, I was giving a, a, a talk on authority, uh, spirituality and authority. And, uh, uh, of course, somebody asked me, and what about the Vatican? So <laughs> I didn't have it on, in my prepared talk, but uh, it came up in the question period. So I honestly answered it, more or less in the way in which I spoke now. And then uh, it's uh, the practice down under that after a talk, there's always someone in the audience who is beforehand a sign to thank you and and not just get up and say thank you but uh, really refer to many points in your talk and, and it's just a little speech it's, it's very nice it's a very beautiful custom and in this case it happened to be the bishop of uh, one of the bishops of Wellington uh, and uh, I wasn't even aware that he was in the audience. And so he went through all the different points that I had touched, and then he said, and when it came to the authority of the Pope, uh, what is he going to say now? <laughs> he said, Brother David gave us a whole spectrum of the history of the church. <laughs> he didn't say it was wrong or anything, he just said, gave us a whole spectrum of the history of the church. <laughs> He didn't, uh, didn't deny anything I said. So I think this is one of the reasons, I, because I'm not aggressive, and so I'm pressure creates counter-pressure, and I just try to let the chips fall where they will. Brother David, let me ask you a, a question on that point. Um, are, you, are you familiar, I imagine you are, with what is called the traditionalist community of thought, I mentioned them earlier, but Fritjof Schoen and René Guénon and the uh, 
set of thinkers uh, at the interface, actually, of Catholicism and the Sufi traditions who, um, who studied this matter of the relationship. Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi teacher, talked about it a lot, but also Maimonides in the Jewish tradition. There's been a long history of people who were mystics and understood the tension between the kernel and the shell. Um, the kernel of the mystical experience and the shell of the institutions. And in the traditionalist view, the question of how well the authorities in that religion managed that tension between the mystical core and the institutions was a critical matter. And in fact, you speak of that in your writings. You talk about how even those who were in the highest positions of authority in the church, some of the mystics themselves, um, that the question of how they manage their relationship with the mystical experience of, of some of the members of the church is critical because if the mystical core gets burnt out, the religion won't survive, and yet there's a necessary tension. Um, but the difference between you and the traditionalists, Fritjof Schoen, René Ganon, and others like them, Titus Burkhardt, others like them, is that they went into the Sufi tradition and decided the problem with the West took place in the Renaissance, when science was freed from its moorings, in, which remained in the Islamic tradition, and that really the West was the history of a mistake from the Renaissance onward. But it seems to me that you embrace independent science and the Renaissance and embrace the humanist tradition which came out of the Renaissance, and yet your analysis of the relationship of that mystical core to the shell is very much in that traditionalist perspective. So what I've never encountered before is someone who has a traditionalist understanding of the relationship between the mystical kernel and the shell yet somehow goes on, and this is what I found quite unique in your work, not only to embrace science, because, for example, the Dalai Lama embraces science, but you embrace humanism in a very direct way. And, um, and though you describe yourself as simply trying to find simple words that speak to everybody's experience, nonetheless, it seems to me that behind those simple words is a quite carefully worked out structure of understanding of spiritual life and these tensions and everything else that goes beyond simply an interpretation of the simple words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm just asking you whether <coughs> this is simply my reading or whether I'm picking up on something that was actually part of your intention. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that it is carefully worked out because I'm trying to work carefully on what I'm saying and, and um, sometimes I have for a long time not been able to talk about certain topics because I hadn't worked them out yet and then I come to some and then I say, well, this is where I stay, stand now and uh, I might change again, but at least I have found something that fits and isn't in contradiction to anything else that I uh, am convinced of. And uh, so I, I 
appreciate you saying that I have carefully worked it out, but I have not reflexively worked it out. I haven't thought about it, uh, and uh, uh, not, not about this area. I, I think that came more or less spontaneously because uh, <clears throat> I think so, I, I appreciate so deeply uh, the particular uh, teaching of my tradition of the incarnation, that the, we find the divine really in nature and also in human nature and therefore in the human. And uh, the earliest, earliest Christians already uh, said to, uh, had this saying, have you seen your sister? Have you seen your brother? You have seen your God. You see the other one and, and uh, C.S. Lewis says, if we could see another human being for what they really are, we would fall down and worship them. Uh, and, and this conviction that the divine meets us in every single person, uh, that is, I've cultivated that, that's very strong, that's very important to me. And maybe that is where the uh, humanistic aspect comes out. Uh, what I see went wrong, uh, particularly in the time of the Enlightenment, is uh, largely because of a misguided opposition on the side of the um, church institution to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment wasn't uh, um, against the church at all, originally. The Enlightenment was very much, uh, saw themselves as uh, as, as discovering new ways of seeing the grandeur of God in the world. That, that was the enlightenment. It was a, <laughs> the divine light breaking through everything in science, for instance, and whatever science there was at the time. You're listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and host Michael Lerner. Uh, but then the church was so afraid uh, that uh, they pushed them and then they pushed against and now what we got is this split between a science that denies uh, the spiritual largely, very largely, and is very afraid of the spiritual and uh, to a lesser extent but still far too much uh, of a uh, church that is very leery of science and fears science. So we, we have gotten this split, and that is, is very bad for everybody. It's not just an academic problem, because human beings nowadays are very much influenced by what science teaches. Science is no longer the church, but the science is teaching us what the world is all about and so forth. So. Since science is lacking that spiritual dimension, people find themselves uh, without rituals, um, without meaning in life, all is purposeful, but where's the meaning of it all? So it's a great loss for us. And I see that, and that is why these thinkers that you have mentioned, and particularly the Sufi tradition is so important, I see that uh, right now, Something comparable 
to the enlightened to what happened to the to the Christian tradition in the age of the Enlightenment is now happening to the Muslim world. And the, my great hope, and this I see this as one of the most important issues of our time. Uh, my great hope is that the Islamic world will manage to uh, master the Enlightenment, incorporate everything that was positive in the Enlightenment, and not lose its rituals, not lose its, its piety. Piety doesn't have a good ring, but it is this... Uh, literally, piety is the family sense, the cosmic family spirit, you see. And we have lost that in the West, and the Middle Ages had that. That was, we were one family, uh, not only the humans, but uh, the animals, the plants, and so forth. Uh, and, and Islam still has that, seems to a large extent. But uh, they, because of the development of human consciousness, they will have to go through something comparable to the Enlightenment. They are at the brink of it, and if they can manage, we should help them best we can. But we, have, we haven't done such a good job ourselves. But uh, if the Islamic world could make that step and retain that cosmic spirit of belonging, that would be really, then our earth would have a great, great deal more hope than we have right now, more, more promise. You know? So, if we go back, I wanted to sort of open up the more mature aspect of your thinking now, and then go back to that point after the five years, 53 to 58 or so, when you were uh, being quiet in, in the monastery. Because then um, it seems that um, a whole series of events called you out into the world, that your abbot uh, uh, suggested that you go to Cornell for postdoctoral work, uh, that you then were given the Thorpe Lectureship, the first uh, Roman Catholic to hold it, which Paul Tillich had held, and then the Martin Buber Prize for contributing to interfaith dialogue, uh, and this exploration of Buddhist-Christian dialogue with Thomas uh, Merton and Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, then going on to found uh, the Zen Mountain Center at Tassajara, all the work you described with the Zen teachers. Uh, I, I only was one of the early students there. I okay. had nothing to do with the founding, but I was there at the very first right. uh, beginnings of it, and, right. and, and I always treasure that, in, that memory. Right. And then in, in uh, then the House of Prayer movement with Brother Bernard Herring and so forth, so and founding the Center for Spiritual Studies. What I'm trying to do, and this is difficult, but maybe you can help me, is to trace the main steps on the evolution of your consciousness and, quote, informal theology from those five years uh, of silence as in the Benedictine monastery to the present. And so help us understand uh, how, how you came to the mature vision that you now hold. I know it's still a work in progress. I understand yes, that. 
but help us understand how you would describe if you were trying to give us sort of touch points along the way. Well, how would you describe uh, Maybe the first transition is the most important one from being a monk that simply in the monastery and doing the monastic thing very, very happily and having no intention of going out. Uh, in fact, I remember I would look at the calendar and I would uh, would look ahead, uh, sort of look ahead uh, to uh, 1972, which then was uh, light years in the future, and uh, and I would say, and on Thursday, the 15th of May of uh, 1972. And it will be the feast of Saint so and so, and we will do this, and I will stay in that place in the choir, and I will sing this antiphon. That was such a bliss for me. It, it gave me such a sense of security. And, and, and then one of these years I will die, but I never thought of anything else but being there in the monastery, following the year, singing all these different seasons, and then dying. It was perfectly fine. And, uh, and what we learned, the key word of the transition, I think, is obedience. Because uh, obedience for us was not doing what we are told to do. That is the method by which you learn obedience. Uh, the, the goal is to know what to do moment by moment by moment, you see, and responding to the given. and. Uh, without uh, analyzing it at the time or reflecting much about it. But we learned to respond to what is the given uh, at, at a time. And, and to do what you like, that is, uh, first of all, because if you don't do it, if you don't like it, uh, then that, that's indicated that it's given to you, that you like it. You, you are, uh, it, it should awaken your zest and your, your joy in life. That's the first thing. The second is that you are able to do it, that, that you have the gifts to do it, because there are many things that you want to do and you would like it, but you, you just don't know how to do it. Uh, Renoir, a uh, famous painter wanted to always write poems. <laughs> so he asked a friend of his, a, a famous French writer, uh, he said, I have all these ideas. Why can't I write poems? And <laughs> the answer was, my friend, poems are not made out of ideas. They are made out of words. <laughs> you have to know, have a way with words before you can write a poem. And so that was the second one. Uh, what, uh, what do I really enjoy? Uh, what can I do? And then what is possible under the circumstances? And when those three come together, then you find your way. That's how I navigate in obedience, because it means listening to what your heart tells you you want to do, listening to what your talents, reason tells you you can do or cannot do, and listening to the circumstances, what is possible at the moment. And basically that's just what I did. I followed step by step under these three points of view, and one thing led to the other. Uh, I have already described how I got to study Zen, and. Um, and then the next thing was, just as I was coming back to the monastery, 
really more or less in that year, uh, I was invited to a conference in, in, uh, in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, uh, that was the starting point uh, for the House of Prayer movement. Uh, you mentioned it, the House of Prayer movement uh, in, originated in the awareness uh, of the... More, it was mostly sisters. There were also religious orders for men involved. Uh, but uh, it really... There were so many more sisters than, than uh, religious men religious. There were, I think, at the time, 300,000 sisters in, in this country. And uh, they were very well trained. They were the best teachers. They were the best social workers, the best uh, medical assistants and so forth. It took them decades to learn that. Not the individual system, but uh, they were originally, in the 19th century, they were just immigrant orders and they took young girls. And um, if they needed teachers, that girl had to teach without much preparation. And over the, uh, a century or so, they really were professionally tops. And at that moment, they discovered, yes, but we made profession to be religious. And we have no training in meditation. We have no training in prayer. It's hard to imagine that today. They were really good professionals as sisters and, and still with these old habits and so forth. So you would have thought they were practically mystics. And they were only well-trained teachers. So from within, once this spark came, this uh, Mother Margaret Brennan, she was a great woman, and she, called, she put just a little notice in one of those papers that many of the religious read, and she said, we want to discuss this question uh, and, and set the date uh, in uh, Monroe, Michigan, and from 120 different orders, they sent people there. And, and I was invited as one of the speakers, so I happened to come in just at the right moment, and I saw this enthusiasm of all these people for spirituality and for meditation and so forth. And I had <laughs> this tiny little practice in Zen, but of course among the blind, the one eyes is the king, so... <laughs> <laughs> so we are enthusiastic. And, and I had met Swami Sachidananda, and I had met Ede Roshi, then Taisan, and Rabbi Gelberman. And so uh, that was the Center for Spiritual Studies. And we went from one house, of, and then they founded these houses of prayer. That came out of that conference that they said, let's find a, some building that belongs to our order and set it aside so that people can come for a day or for a week or for a month or for a year and practice meditation and practice contemplative life and study and read books on spirituality and so catch up on that aspect of their profession. That, that's all it was. And before long there were hundreds of houses of prayer all over the country, everywhere, and uh, Swami Sachinanda and we went from one of these houses of prayer to the other and we gave talks and we talked with the sisters and, and it was really a blossoming and, and Thomas Merton was in on it too at the very, very beginning. Then he soon died but he was one of those who gave an impetus to this movement. So, uh, because it, I enjoyed it, uh, I had something to offer 
and, uh, and the need was there, I slid into this slot, and then one after the other. When this was over, the house of prayer wasn't really over, but uh, that boom of it uh, lasted only a few years. And then the need was still there uh, for lectures and for going out. And, and so I was already then on this lecture track, and many people knew me, so I was invited often. Many, t uh, At least half of the invitation I had to... Not couldn't accept anyway, but many of the invitations I accepted, and at first it was mostly nationally, then it became internationally. So that that's how I got into this lecturing and traveling. Then I felt that I needed uh, to uh, counterbalance that, and my abbot also stressed that very much. And he said, "Look, you are so much among people. When you come back home, you need more than just being again in a community." Uh, if you like, you can, you can go into hermitage. So I liked that very much and needed that. So then I really alternated between hermitage and, um, and house of prayer or, or other lectures, lecturing. So one thing led to the other, but I think the principle was simply, what do I enjoy uh, and uh, what am I able to do and what do the circumstances call forth? So it wasn't really a plan. It was a meandering thing. You spent quite a few years involved uh, with Esalen and the New Kamalali Hermitage mm -hmm. uh, in Big Sur. Um, and at Esalen, you met another set of oh, yeah. uh, remarkable people. <laughs> who were the people at Esalen who touched your thinking and evolution in some way? Well, Rictanus is one. Rictanus was uh, Rictanus was at one time um, I forgot what the name of that position is, but he, he invited the speakers. He was, okay. was in charge of the speaker program, and at that time he invited me quite a number of times. But uh, I was busy otherwise, and SLN for me was just another name on <laughs> among the invitations. So I. I didn't go there, uh, I just didn't have the time. And then, uh, so Rick when I came, Rick Tannis was still there, but in a different position, and he influenced me very much. Uh, <clears throat> I must say, uh, I, uh, it probably makes sense out of this very orthodox and traditional uh, Catholic upbringing that I came out of, open-minded, but, but very orthodox. Astrology, that was the last thing I would have been interested in. <laughs> I just wasn't interested. And then in the 80s, pretty late, but in the eight, 1980s, uh, I had some crisis, um, and I thought, gee, <laughs> this is not just your ordinary crisis that has cosmic proportions. <laughs> and, and so I called uh, Rick, and uh, and he, he said, uh, oh yeah, yeah, and he told me about what my constellations were at that time and my transits, and he said, yeah, yeah, I, I know you and pro have problems. And then I called another, uh, Alice Howell, whom you might know, uh, a Jungian analyst and, and astrologer, and uh, uh, she said exactly the same thing and knew and na named the same transits and so forth, so I knew it wasn't completely fly by night, but 
And then I got a little bit into it and informed me, informed myself, and I must say, uh, the two the tools that helped me most understand myself, I'm not very much uh, for autobiography or for reflection. I prefer to live as far as possible spontaneously. But the tools that helped me understand myself, one was astrology. I could never understand myself the way I understand myself out of my chart, and uh, with the help of Rictanus very largely. And the other one was uh, the Enneagram. And I knew the Enneagram very early on, long before it was so famous, um, but also uh, uh, is it Hunt who comes to the, gives the Enneagram workshops in the, is it David? David Hunt? No, not there. I forgot. Anyway, the Enneagram helped me a lot there. Uh, Francis Liu uh, has become a very good friend. We have been doing workshops for, oh, I think this 25 years now, on film every year. Uh, he was giving a film workshop at Esalen, and, um, and I, we just talked. Uh, happened to have the workshop at the same time and sat somewhere in the lodge and uh, he told me about his f film workshop and I said, oh, I'd like to attend that sometime. He said, why don't, why don't we do it together? All oh, right, let's do it together. And the next year we did it together. I must admit, <laughs> I always have a very bad conscience because I, I do make a few remarks and I, in the beginning, uh, particularly, I helped him select the films uh, but it's mostly him, he does the whole thing. But uh, he's a very good friend and that has been booming. It's always sold out before the catalog comes out. So the, the film workshop was very, very, very helpful. Um, uh, well, that's a sense of it. Um, what about New Kamaldoli Hermitage? You spent quite a bit of time there? Yeah, that was also something that just came this way. And in a very roundabout way, I uh, met some young, then young monks at some, some workshop or somewhere. And uh, they told me, they invited me to come and told me that they were uh, living as Benedictine monks, but they weren't attached to anything, and would I come and spend some time with them? So I came and visited them. They lived in Santa Cruz, uh, or near Santa Cruz at the time, and uh, they were uh, hippies uh, who had um, just lived together and discovered the rule of St. Benedict and got enthusiastic about it, and then tried to live as monks very seriously and very faithfully and uh, try to attach themselves to the Episcopal Church. Uh, they were not Catholics and, uh, and the Episcopalians thought that it was a little too far out and uh, then they uh, got to, I think they worked in the garden and helped with uh, poor Claire nuns in um, uh, somewhere there in the, in the area of S uh, Santa Cruz. And one of the nuns 
took a particular liking to them and helped them. And, uh, so then she died. They were with her in the weeks before her death. And then after she died, they felt very deeply moved and all three of them became Catholics. And now they looked for a Catholic monastery that would take them under their wings. And, <laughs> and they were really living as monks. I mean, they were singing, chanting the office, and really, really strict. Uh, but completely suspended in midair. So my, I asked my abbot, and he was open to it. He said, I looked them over. So he came to uh, California and looked them over. And then he said, yeah, it looks serious. Uh, you can spend a year with them, make this a year of novitiate for them. And after that year, they can run their own thing and they are related to us. We, we give them a free hand, but we put our umbrella over them. And of course, arranging all that, uh, canceling or quickly fulfilling my obligations, it took a while until this whole thing came about. And during that time, these three men, uh, two of whom had been in prison uh, for drug, drug reasons, uh, started a prison ministry. And it was very successful because they really could speak the language of the prisoners. So they had uh, high security prisons and could go in and out, all three of them. And when I came, I couldn't go in. Uh, they had now a ministry, which was very different from what they had before. They were no longer contemplative monks. So I was kind of sitting there <laughs> out of a job. And their spiritual director was Father Bruno from the Hermitage, the abbot of the Hermitage. So he said, well, they don't need you. Why don't you come to us? And that is how I came to the Hermitage. And I came there for half a year or something like that, and I spent 14 years there. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, my wife Cheryl and I have been to the Hermitage. Jennifer Stahl's been to the Hermitage. Uh, we find it a very powerful place. It's great. It's a wonderful place. And uh, it has tremendous possibilities. Uh, when I came there, they had just gone through a, a great, very difficult time because they had many, I think they had uh, 10 or 12 novices and that was booming. And, uh, and the novice master overnight left uh, and got married. So uh, the novices drifted off. It was a great shock. It was a great shock to the prior. Uh, and uh, Soon after I came, there were so few that we didn't know how to distribute ourselves around the altar so that it would look more or less filling up the church. And when I left, there were so many that we were quite crowded. So it was, it was a good time that I spent there. And it was a very, very happy time for me. I loved working in the garden. I had a very beautiful garden. I had some wonderful cats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, you mentioned those cats in your, in your biography of cats. Particularly uh, Smokey, the, the Carthusian cat, that uh, the Carthusians bred this uh, trait of cats. Uh, they brought them from uh, somewhere in Egypt, probably, during the Crusades. 
and then they, they uh, bred them, and they are so quiet. So they have a quiet meow, and they just go, they don't say <laughs> They look up to, the, to you with these sad eyes and can't meow. <laughs> and they have these beautiful tangerine eyes. <laughs> And when you part their gray fur, it's sky blue. The skin is sky blue underneath, just like Russian blues. It's, it's a beautiful breed of cat. Uh, so Smokey was the cat there and had a beautiful garden. It was a very happy time. <laughs> Let's take a little break now and uh, come back in a few minutes for the last hour together. Thank you very much. Thank you very yeah, much for yeah. making it so much fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at the-new-school.org. That's the-new-school.org. Thank you for listening.